Thank you for joining us today. Whether you are part of the Lighthouse family, be it on-site with us weekly or tuning in online, we'd love to connect with you via our social media at Lighthouse Ely. It's on all our social media platforms. I hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Enjoy the message. It's in this atmosphere, this spirit, I want to invite Mark, my good friend, and his lovely wife, Vanda. So lovely to see you. I say good friend, we've known each other maybe six months, maybe. But this man is like my brother, and instantly, you know, we just connected in the spirit. And it's not because we like the same football team or anything like that you know there's connections that happen in the spirit and I think this is one of them minister what's on your heart my brother you, you haven't introduced me much beyond what you've said but that's I'll, I'll fine tell you afterwards. Okay, fine. praise the Lord I'm really happy to be here um, and I feel so much better when I finish preaching <laughs> because the Lord has given me what I want to call an awful word, and yes, it's just really heavy on me. So, may the Lord bless it. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. Lord, take my mouth and speak through it. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts, almighty God, and set them on fire afresh with true love for you above all. And also with true love for one another, Jesus, for your sake. Amen. Most of my adult life I've been functioning as an Ag Anglican priest, for better or worse, but I've left all that behind me now. And at the heart of the Anglican liturgy, uh, one says these words, powerful words. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. I really believe those three statements from the bottom of my heart. They're the foundations of my life. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been praying, Thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy kingdom come. Now, what do we expect as we pray those words? What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come fully in our midst right now? What would happen? I think we'd be slain in the spirit this way and that way. We'd just be caught up in silent adoration of him, the king of kings and the lord of lords. What would it look like? What will it look like when his kingdom is fully consummated? Are we really expecting Christ's kingdom to come? Now, there are two words which both begin with the letter A, which in popular consciousness mean almost the same thing, but which actually have diametrically different meanings. These two words are apocalypse and secondly, Armageddon. Apocalypse and Armageddon. 
Apocalypse actually means, it doesn't mean disaster, it means revelation. It means the appearing of Jesus in all of his fullness, glory and power and wonder. Yes, for some it may be a disaster, his appearing, but for us who believe, we long for that, don't we? We long to see Jesus face to face and be caught up in his glory. And miracle of miracles when we see Jesus be found to be like him. Not to have to cower away in shame or guilt. That is apocalypse, beloved ones. And I'm longing for the full apocalypse of Jesus Christ. For me and for those of us who believe, it is not disaster, but fulfillment. By contrast, Armageddon is the great symbolical battlefield, the scene of the final struggle between the powers of good and evil. A great war or battle of nations. Wow. <laughs> Referenced in Revelation 16, 16. Of course, there's a relationship between the two. But as I pray, thy kingdom come, I'm praying, I'm longing for that manifestation of Jesus in his glory. I'm not praying for an Armageddon-like nuclear holocaust. I know Jesus' kingdom is coming and I seek to work for that kingdom every moment of my life. And when it comes and as it comes, it's a kingdom of love and joy and peace where death shall be no more, where mourning and crying and pain shall be no more. That's the kingdom I'm longing for and working for with every fiber of my being. But with Israel on the one hand and the access of Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran on the other hand at each other's throats, whether we talk about it or not, we wonder perhaps whether an Armageddon-like confrontation is perhaps just around the corner. We wonder that, whether we talk about it or not. Additionally, I've lost count of the number of times that Vladimir Putin has threatened the, the use of nuclear weapons during the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And the nuclear weapon has concretized that which only prophets and poets saw. It has given statistical definition and clarity to something. We struggle to understand ourselves in the light of the fact of the bomb. So far from it being true that the concrete and factual are easily grasped by us, it is clear to some of us that the facts of our nuclear situation are actually virtually impossible to comprehend. Yet that is too big for us. We don't want to think about it. As the French enemy in 1812 drew nearer to Moscow, the attitude taken by its inhabitants in regard to their position did not become more serious. But on the contrary, 
their attitude became more frivolous. As, it, as is often the case with people who see a great danger approaching. At the approach of danger, there are always two voices that speak with equal force in the human heart. One, very reasonably, tells the person to consider the nature of the danger and the means of avoiding it. But the other, even more reasonably, says that it is too painful and harassing to think of the danger and that it is better to turn away from that painful subject and to think of what is pleasant. And so it was now, wrote Leo Tolstoy in War and Peace. And so it was now with the inhabitants of Moscow. It had been a long time since there had been so much gaiety in Moscow as there was that year as the French enemy approached. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It is arguable that the COVID lockdown debacle of 2019-2021 was perhaps a dress rehearsal for a further confrontation between state power and Christian liberty and understanding. Amen. Those of us who read thoughtfully and prayerfully the book of Revelation will be aware that that is one of its primary themes. The tension between state power at times and Christian liberty and discernment. In the 1840s, John Henry Newman told the Irish high churchman, Hugh James Rose, I cannot love the Church of England, commonly so designated. Its very title is an offence, for it implies that it holds not of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the true church, but rather of the state, Erastianism. And anyone who reads the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is reminded that Christians cannot always assume that the state will be on their side or tell the truth. St. Paul says in another place, we have to test everything and to walk circumspectly, carefully, aware, with our eyes open. So let me try to be clear about what I've said so far in this message. First, we long for the apocalypse and the manifestation of Jesus in all of his glory in the midst of a situation, in a situation which speaks of the threat of an Armageddon-like destruction. That's the first thing that's been said. Secondly, we watch and we pray. 
We pray with our eyes open, seeking to be aware of what is really happening in the spiritual realm today as we see physical things unfold on the face of the earth. Then thirdly, as Christians, while we recognize the truth of Romans chapter 13 verse 1, we also recognize that the state can never be the final authority for the Christian. There are ample examples of that, of course, in the Bible. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Moses' mother refusing to allow her son Moses to be killed. And as St. Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, whether it is right to listen to you who are in authority rather than to God, you must judge. Now what I want to say to you, dearly beloved ones who I don't know in purpose but who I feel for and love sincerely in my heart, what I want to say to you now, I say with deadly earnestness. How do you think of yourselves individually and collectively as a church? In 2023, in our present situation, in this city of Ely, in this county of Cambridgeshire, in this nation. How do you think of yourselves? Are you aware that you are the light of the world? You are the light of the world. In the providence of God, you have not been given the name Lighthouse in vain. That is your destiny. That is your calling, beloved ones. To rise up and be a light in today's present situation such as you could not imagine. Are you aware of what has been entrusted to you? Are you aware of your power in Christ and your responsibility? If not, I invite you this morning to become aware of that, to enter in to your destiny, to enter in to your callings and calling individually and collectively. Because I declare to you this day that as you are obedient, I won't say if you're obedient, but as you're obedient in the days to come, things will unfold before you such as you cannot imagine. You are a lighthouse. You are a lighthouse, not just to Ely, but to this nation. Because as you step forward in faith, other churches will find a faith they did not even know they had. To put their trust in God Almighty alone. Because that's what we're coming down to, beloved ones. To choose between the seemingly safe, comfortable, status option. Status, what this world offers us, or to risk all with our Lord Jesus Christ, who risked everything that he had and was for the salvation of the world, who allowed his blood to be poured out so that we might have life, so that we might receive his blood, so that we might receive his life, 
so that we might receive His Spirit so that we, you, this church, can become the light and the love of Jesus in this nation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Hallelujah. And it's, I tell you, it's lovely being able to read your faces. That was, that was the one condition I gave to Giles about agreeing to preach today. I said, I will only preach if I can read the faces of the congregation. If, I, if, if you, you all are not in darkness and me, the, all the spotlight on, on me, I hate that. I hate the spotlight being on me. I want to be a pointer to Jesus and his kingdom coming, which is at hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I desire that same anointing to come upon you, beloved ones, that you also together would be a glorious pointer to his kingdom coming. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I like it when I go off script. (laughs) But then I have no idea where I am in my notes. (laughs) So I think I've already said what what is written here in my notes. Yes. That I believe that if this church, the Lighthouse Church, sees clearly the narrow gate, the narrow way, and heads for it unerringly, it will fulfill the most beautiful destiny for Jesus, but also unlock, unlock in the Spirit a pathway for other individuals and other churches to enter into. Because whether you like it or not, there are a lot of other people out there watching this church. And as you are faithful, and as the anointing of the Lord increases upon you, others will marvel and say, yes, God, we want this way. We want this way of the cross and liberation. We want this way of freedom. Recently, I was asked to review a book entitled, I think, The Age of the Spirit. It's the history of the charismatic movement in the Anglosphere over a period of 40 years or so. It was very well researched, and it was quite a profound experience for me to read, to watch, as it were, on those pages, an incredible transcontinental outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And see how many carefully steward, stewarded what God was graciously giving over those decades. But where are we now? You know, if one says that the charismatic movement renewal began sometime in the 60s, where are we now these decades later? How has the COVID lockdown experience affected us who think of ourselves as charismatic? Here, in Ely, in the church generally. Do we gain our identity from being well thought of in the community? Or do we gain our identity from radical, Christ-like nonconformity? 
Let me say that again. I love those words. <laughs> Radical, Christ-like nonconformity. Because ultimately, he's the only standard, isn't he? That's, he's the only standard we need to worry about. The gay issue, for example, is a, is a cause of painful division along these lines. But it's not the only issue on which God-fearing Christians have to choose sides today. Rod Dreher, the author of a book called The Benedict Option, if you haven't heard of his name or this book, I really commend it to you. He wrote this. I, I came to see the churches, including my own, as largely ineffective in combating the forces of cultural decline. Traditional, historic Christianity, whether Catholic, evangelical, charismatic, or mainline Protestant, ought to be a powerful counterforce to the radical individualism and secularism of modernity. Even though biblical Christians were said to be fighting a culture war, with the exception of the abortion and gay marriage issues, it was hard to see my people putting up much of a fight at all. We seem content to be the chaplaincy to a consumerist culture that was fast losing any sense of what it meant to be Christian. Belo end of quote. Beloved ones, the Christian church is not called to be a chaplaincy to a society going to hell. It's not called to be providing a religious gloss to a culture that has lost any sense of being rooted in Christ. No, the Christian church's vocation is to be the called out people of God manifesting the light and love of Jesus. Those people who have heard his ancient call, be ye holy, even as I am holy, be set apart unto me. For I am a jealous God and I love you with all my heart and I desire to see only the very best drawn out of you that you might be fulfilled in the fulfilling of my holy loving purposes. You are the light of the world. You are a lighthouse. Move afresh into that destiny, into that calling. <laughs> I belong to a prayer network called the Guild of St. John and St. Mary Magdalene. And one of the texts that is most important to us is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Now, I know all of you know that verse off by heart, just like that. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the abuse he endured. I know you love that verse. <laughs> now, I got a hold of this text years ago through one of my real heroes. I think he's just still alive. He's about 90 now. David Pitches, the founder of the New Wine movement, as probably most of you know. Now, at that time when he was preaching on Hebrews 13, verse 12 and following, bear the abuse with Christ 
outside the camp. At that same time, he was being raked over the coals by the bishops of the Church of England. For what? For church planting. (laughs) You would think that most church people would welcome church planting. But no, that was his great sin against the establishment. Planting churches outside his parish boundaries. Can you believe it? Now this is what our charismatic pioneers had to endure. Being vilified for what was... Being vilified was what they came to expect and had to learn how to bear graciously. My uncle was a man called John Collins. I don't expect most of you to have heard of him. He was vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton before Sandy Miller. And his parish was the first parish in the Church of England to come into charismatic renewal. His curates included David Watson and David McInnes. But after 12 years in that parish, St. Mark's Gillingham, when he knew that it was time for him to move on in God's providence, every door in the Church of England was closed to him. Why? What was his great sin? Being charismatic. At that time, it was far from respectable. But they that sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Beloved ones, what are we going to do with the hard-won legacy of our forefathers and foremothers in this movement of the Holy Spirit, which we call charismatic? Are we going to rejoice in now being relatively accepted and appreciated? Or are we, this is the crunch, or are we prepared to sacrifice again? To embrace the cross again for Jesus' sake in his pathway. To take risks for Jesus' sake in terms of moving outside of the comfortable and accepted parameters. If any want to become my followers, my disciples, let them deny themselves and take up the cross, for that is the way of life. And again in John chapter 12, I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, if it embraces the cross, if we embrace the cross, we bear much fruit. Oh, I can feel it. And I I just love how I, I, I know you're responding to this in your hearts as grace and truth and life. Lord, I thank you for that which you have already put into the hearts of these dearly beloved ones. I confess, I often prefer to avoid the cross. I don't don't find it comfortable. But I do know that it is the path 
of life. You are the salt of the earth. You are. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. What would it mean for your light to shine with renewed vigor so that other churches follow where you led? What would it mean for you to be so salty that your saltiness stings in Ely afresh? Ah, bring it on, Lord. I believe it means nothing more and nothing less that embracing afresh the spiritual principle of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As we present our bodies, our whole beings, all that we have and are, afresh as a living sacrifice to Almighty God, knowing that this necessarily entails not being conformed to this world. The two things are antithetical. We cannot have favor with this world that knows not the Lord Jesus Christ and it, and it does not accept his lordship if we are totally abandoned to him. But as we follow that narrow way, that narrow way which is the life and love of Jesus, miracles happen. The anointing of the Holy Spirit breaks open doorways, dismantles obstacles, and creates a path not only for us to walk in, but a path for the Lord Jesus to come in on. That's our calling. Hallelujah. That's the anointing that rests upon you. And I say to you afresh this day, Rejoice in your nonconformity. Rejoice in the freedom the Lord Jesus Christ has won for you at great cost with the shedding of his own blood. Rejoice in the freedom that no one can take from you as long as you keep your eyes on Jesus. Rejoice in the cross, which is the gateway to resurrection, life and power. Honour all people. Honour those in authority. Love one another fervently. But fear God. Fear God. For He and He alone is our ultimate authority. If we're asked to close our churches again, will we? <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> Our true Lord is coming back. Hallelujah. He's coming back to rule and to reign. We're getting ready. And you, beloved ones, help the churches of the British Isles to get ready for this reality. Also, the time is short. He is coming. 
Let us pray. Oh, Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, I marvel at you afresh this day. I marvel at who you are. Lord, I thank you for the gift of faith, for the grace to take risks for you and with you and in you. And Lord, I thank you for all that you are bringing to pass. Lord, I thank you for all that will come to pass through this body gathered in this way this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for their deep desire to obey you, whatever the cost, whatever comes, whatever happens. And Lord Jesus Christ, if any of us are called to be martyrs for our faith, we thank you for that high calling. We thank you afresh this morning for your blood shed, Lord Jesus, through which you have won for us such a great salvation. And we glory in that salvation, Lord. We glory in that new life. We thank you for all that you have won for us, Jesus. We bless your holy name. Amen.